A reading from 1 Samuel. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, See now, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command the servants who attend you to look for someone who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me someone who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a warrior, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a kid, and sent them by his son David to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. And Saul would be relieved and feel better, and the evil spirit would depart from him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I not been with you all this time, Philip? And you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and give us strength to follow on the path you set before us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, this is such a strange but important little text Uh, in the story of David. If you are here last week, you know we've just begun our sermon series this summer on reflections on the life of David. So who is David? 
And for that matter, as we're reading this story, who is Saul? If you're new to the church or if you're new to studying the Bible and you have no clue who these people are and you feel like, man, everyone else in the room seems to like know these characters really well, but I have absolutely no idea. We could be on any page of the Bible. I wouldn't know any different. Don't worry. I've been there too. You are not alone if that is your situation. It can be hard to get your bearings when it seems like uh, you're the only one who is new to this stuff. Um, But uh, if that's true, honestly, if that's true of you, I would love to talk to you at the back. I would love to know like how you ended up here and what your journey has been like so far because I was in that space at one time myself. So if that's you, consider this my personal invitation to you. Please meet me at the back if you're new to the church or the scriptures. I'd love to talk with you and hear more about that. Okay, so who are these people? Saul and David. Saul uh, Saul was the first king of Israel, uh, who was off to such a great start in the story. So much potential. But in this episode, we see this is where things really start to go wrong for him. Who is David? David is the second king of Israel, Saul's successor. And he's really one of the most important figures in the Hebrew Bible, or what we often call the Old Testament. David lived about 3,000 years ago, about 1,000 years before Jesus. And he's famous for lots of reasons. He had some huge successes. He had some huge failures, some which were absolutely morally reprehensible by anyone's measure. But he also is a figure of major repentance and restoration. He's known often as the king after God's own heart or the sweet psalm singer of Israel, partly because the prayers that are recorded for us from David's life in the book of Psalms are some of the the richest display of vulnerability and emotion in the life of faith. David just lets his anger and his joy and his celebration and his shame and his despair and his anguish and his comfort bleed into the psalms. And so there's a treasure store there for us of David's own inner life shared with us to stir and shape our own inner life with God. But most importantly, David is the one king of Israel in all of history with whom God made a very special promise that it would be David's descendant who would bring God's everlasting kingdom on the earth as it is in heaven. And that descendant, if you haven't guessed already, turns out to be Jesus. Once the story unfolds that far, we find that Jesus is this one. Jesus is frequently called son of David in the Gospels. Not only because he's descended from David in his just own family tree, but also because Jesus is the one that God has sent to fulfill all the ancient promises he made to this very special King David. And so Jesus is, as the hymn writer calls him, great David's greater son. And so, so much of the story of Jesus actually has its roots in the story of David. And since Jesus is like the most important person who's ever lived, he's the only one who's walked the earth as God in person in our world. He's the only one who's been raised from the dead unto everlasting life. He's the only one who's been able to back up the ridiculously bold claim that the way to God is through him. He's the single most influential figure in human history to date. It stands to reason that the story of Jesus is well worth knowing, regardless of what you think about it. And also, because the story of Jesus is so rooted in the story of David, the story of David is well worth knowing too. And so that's what we're doing this summer. We're reflecting on the story of David. And as I already mentioned, this particular episode of the story is a very strange but very important one. What is strange about this story? 
Well, for one thing, God sends an evil spirit to torment Saul. What's that about? That's problematic, right? I mean, doesn't that seem to be at odds with what the scripture says elsewhere about God? Maybe like what James says, that God is not a tempter of evils. Or what the gospel writer John says, that like in him is no darkness at all. Or maybe what theologians often like to say is that God is not the author of evil. Isn't there an obvious problem here? Hold on to that question. We'll come back to that in a minute. Let's keep going with what's strange about this text. That's one thing. What else is strange? Well, here we find Saul. He's being tormented by this evil spirit, and he's experiencing depression and distress in this state of torment. What happens? His servants come up with this idea that maybe a court musician would help. Someone who could play the lyre, sort of like an ancient guitar. And Saul likes this idea, so he orders his servants to get one of these lyre players for him. And then this guy, one of Saul's servants, he speaks up in this way too eager way. And he seems to know way too much, like more than he could possibly know about David at this point in the story. And he totally oversells David for this job. All right, look at this. This guy steps forward and he says, I know who would be good a son of Jesse from Bethlehem, who's really good at playing the lyre. Also, he's a war hero and an eloquent speaker with commanding public presence, and the Lord God is with him. In other words, David is seriously overqualified for the job of court musician. Um, these aren't court musician credentials. These are king credentials. And of course, if you were here last week when we looked at the episode of the story just before this one, what we saw is that David has just been anointed king, in fact, by God's prophet Samuel. But Saul, being none the wiser, he says, sounds good to me. He sends a message to David's father, Jesse, saying, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. Weird. How does Saul know David is with the sheep? It's just weird. David's father, Jesse, loads up this donkey with gifts for the king. And he gives bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, which, by the way, are exactly the same three things that appear in an earlier episode of the story as signs for Saul that God is doing something very particular. He's told to look for those three signs in an earlier episode. He sees them, and it confirms that God is doing something special. Here are those same three gifts appearing again. Saul doesn't seem to notice. David comes to Saul's court, and he enters his service, and Saul loves him. He makes him his armor bearer, which is not the job David was recruited for, right? But it's a permanent one. The armor bearer is a, like a permanent employee of the king's staff. And so David, by being promoted from court musician to armor bearer, would be, he, that means he'd be around all the time. And he'd be actually very close to Saul. It sets things up nicely for the next episode in the story, which will be the David and Goliath story, where the little armor bearer David is going to take on the giant. But it also begins to move David further into the public eye. David, who was anointed in secret, now begins to move to the forefront of the story. And then this last weird thing that we see about it, this story is that David's lyre playing actually works. That when he plays the lyre, Saul does feel better. This evil spirit that's tormenting him actually does go away when David plays. And then when David stops playing, it comes back. That's strange. So what's important about this story? 
Well, first and foremost, it's important because it's the moment that we see the spirit of the Lord depart from Saul, the spirit who's come upon David. And it's the moment where the Saul storyline begins to nosedive and the David storyline begins to ascend. And of course, it is the David storyline that becomes ultimately important in the great story God is telling. But there are more important things about this story, especially as we think about what it looks like for us to live with it and read it toward our own lives as scripture. And the first thing I think is just this. It shows us something important about what sort of work befits God's sort of king. What does a king do? A whole lot of nothing, probably, if you ask me, right? What does a king do? If you think about it's good to be king, what do you envision? Yeah, like massive privilege being enjoyed by the king while everyone else does the hard work, right? Or when you do work, it's spending time only on the biggest, most important, most glorious tasks and decisions and not to be bothered by the little things. But this story shows us that that is not how God sees kingship. And that is not how God sees king work. This story gives us a glimpse in David's life of what we'll see even more clearly in the life of Jesus. That kingship is about serving, not about being served. Eugene Peterson has a little book with reflections on the life of David called Leap Over a Wall. And in his reflection on this passage, uh, he, he defines this concept of king work that he uses to distinguish against, uh, you know, work that is inherently dignified, uh, not simply work that, you know, whatever you leverage your energy toward. And Peterson says that king work is all true work that is inherently dignified because it derives its form and represents God's work of creating, preserving, and cultivating life, beauty, justice, and peace in the world. The God who rules over all, yet serves all. King work is the work that reflects the God who works. And Peterson says that the key to living vocationally, that is, as being God-called, spirit-anointed, isn't getting the right job or career, but doing king work in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. We begin to engage our work as king work precisely when we become more interested in God, our king, than in the work itself. Think about that for a minute. King work. Work you're anointed to do by virtue of your receiving of God's spirit and your bearing the image of the God who made you and is at work in the world. What would it look like for you, for me, to take up our work, whether it's work at home or work in the workplace or work in your, in, you know, wherever you serve and volunteer, work here in the church, what would it look like for us to take up that work as king work in all of those various spheres of our lives? What would it look like for us to do that together where we're becoming more and more interested in the king than in whatever the particular work is itself that would be so transformative of the work we do as we begin to recognize ourselves as instruments in his hands? We began the worship service with Psalm 8, of reading responsively this psalm, whereas this psalm where, that, that shows how our work exposes our likeness to God. We who are made a little lower than God. 
And if you think about it, that's why it's so thrilling to thrive in our work. It's because when we work, we are most godlike. That's why work is also one of the greatest temptations we face in this life. Have you ever felt that inner fire come alive as you leveraged your energy and your talent and your time and your creativity towards something that just worked? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that sweet spot vocationally where you're like, yes, this is what it means to be human in a way that brings life to the world? Maybe you created something beautiful, or maybe you brought order out of chaos, or maybe you, get, you used your God-given aptitude and your hard-earned skills to save someone's life, or to help someone in a life-changing way, or to advocate for those who have no voice or to offer hope for the hopeless, or protection to the vulnerable, or to create jobs for those who needed them, or to nurture a child's life as a parent, or a caretaker, or a teacher, or to do research that advances our collective knowledge in such a way that practitioners of all sorts are able to do their work more effectively to bless the earth, or to take care of the elderly or the sick or the dying who cannot take care of themselves, but whose dignity has not diminished one bit since the days of their strength and their youth. This is holy work. This is king work. And through this sort of work, God the worker speaks forth new creation into our midst. And God, the redeemer of all things, extends his kingdom of life into the world through your own body, through your fingertips and your feet. This God who has made you only a little lower than him and who is making all things new, including you and including the people who encounter you by his spirit. God is with you more than you know. And you are more like God than you know, which is what makes our work both so important and so dangerous. Because our godlikeness can lead us away from God just as surely as it can bring us to our knees before him. The illusion of self-sufficiency uh, that our godlikeness can create, it can blind us, perhaps more powerfully than anything else, to the reality of our dependence upon the God who made us to reflect his likeness. And this is exactly what gets Saul into trouble in the story. At the beginning of Saul's episode in the story, he is magnificent. He is so full of potential. This guy is like the perfect hire. But as the story unfolds, we discover that he's actually really not all that interested in God. Saul is far more interested in following industry standard best practices than he is obeying God's instructions, and that's what gets him in trouble. Saul, at the end of the day, is a pragmatist more than a disciple. And he makes a couple of military decisions that if you were simply assessing the wisdom of those decisions on purely strategic grounds, you would say, those were good moves. The problem is that his apparently shrewd maneuvers went directly against the explicit directions of God, the God who made Saul king in the first place to carry out his will. Saul thought he knew better, and he was more interested in success than he was in God, and so he lived by the light of his own eyes rather than by the light of God's leading. And the result, short-term success, long-term failure which is the way these things often go. 
Saul grasped at success and he got it for a while. But God didn't call Saul to be successful. He called him to be faithful. And that's the same for you and me, right? God calls us not to be successful, but to be faithful. God called Saul to move forward according to God's instructions and to trust God with the results, not to take control of the results and to pursue them by any means necessary. The difference between David and Saul at this point in the story is really the difference between trusting and grasping. Saul is the king who grasps. David is the king who trusts. Just think about that dynamic for a moment in your own life. Trusting God versus grasping at success or grasping at life or grasping at security or whatever it is, whatever that thing is for you. What does it look like to live in a posture toward God and toward the world and toward your future where you're actually more concerned by faithfully engaging what God has for you today than you are in hypermanaging the results? That difference in dynamic is the difference between Saul and David. And when Saul becomes more interested in succeeding as king than he is interested in the God who made him king, he grasps at the results he wants by turning to strategies and methods that seem wisest to him, even though it means turning from the explicit will of the Lord. So God fires him. He gets fired as king. The Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul and comes upon David instead. So now David's king. Nobody knows except David, the prophet Samuel, and God. But David is in fact king at this point because God has made him so. He's not recognized as king, but he is. So God begins to move the story forward. And he gives Saul a bout of depression. Or as the text puts it, an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, we've already said this is weird. What does that mean? What does it mean that an evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul? Well, it does not mean that God's spirit is evil or does evil. This isn't the spirit of the Lord we're talking about here. The whole point is that that spirit, God's spirit, has left Saul. And so now there's a sort of spiritual vacuum with Saul that makes him vulnerable to other spiritual forces. And in the worldview of this text, two very important things are true. One is spiritual realities are connected to everything. And two, God is sovereign and ultimately in control of everything. And therefore, everything that happens is just directly attributed to God in these narratives without any nuanced or complex understanding of secondary causes or more uh, immediate causation. It's just a simple way of describing what's happening. And we get into trouble when we try to overly theologize or overly psychologize uh, a statement like this, because this isn't just some ancient superstitious way of understanding depression as like being plagued with spirits or something like that. That's not, it's not simply what it is. It's also not meant to be a statement of theology about how things typically work. The point is this is, a, is using the idiom that fits the people of that day as God lets his children tell the story to narrate the point that God has fired Saul 
has anointed David as king, and now God is moving the story forward and moving the pieces in such a way that pushes God's kingdom forward. It's a very behind-the-scenes sort of way. And so Saul becomes depressed, and he needs this musician to help him feel better. And so he calls for David, and David begins to move into the public eye. And shockingly, the first task God gives David as king is to go and serve the bad king that he just fired. Now, that's surprising to me. That's not what I would have expected the first task of the newly anointed king to be. But that's the task God gives him. And just put yourself in David's shoes right here. He goes, he's anointed as king, but he's going to serve the king he is to replace. And he doesn't know how all of this is going to work out. He hasn't been given some, you know, revelation of the future about, you know, this is how these, this is going to play forward. All he knows is this strange experience that he's had of being anointed by Samuel, and now they've come for him, and his dad is sending him to the king's house to be his servant, and David goes obediently. He doesn't assert himself. He stays in his lane, and he simply moves forward faithfully and patiently doing the next right thing that honors God, that honors his father, and that honors the king, and he leaves the results in the hands of God. Unlike Saul, David trusts rather than grasps, and he simply focuses on doing what is faithful and right. This is the king after God's own heart. And this is, of course, what we see in the kingship of Jesus when we find him later in the story, great David's greater son. Jesus, this one who was anointed as king at his baptism and then was thrown into the wilderness of all places to be tempted by the devil of all people before he begins the arduous work of exercising the authority of God as king, exercising it over sickness and spirits and even death. And this is the dynamic, trusting rather than grasping, that God calls us to as we do our work in fellowship with our king. And so the call to you and to me is simply one of, will you trust God with your life? Will you trust God with your work? Will you do what is right and good and true, the next faithful thing that is for you to do? Or will you remain attached to your agenda, hypermanaging your life in order to grasp what you can? This is the difference between David and Saul, and it's the difference between a life of discipleship and a life of wandering. Lastly, I think this, what this text gives us that's important, this little episode, is a picture of what it looks like to practice the presence of God's Spirit. It's the presence of God's Spirit with David that makes David's liar playing effective in helping Saul feel better, right? Saul calls him to his court because he's depressed, he's, he's tormented. And he calls David to come, and it's not just like, you know, music helps. David has the spirit of the Lord. And when he plays his lyre, God works through that to re-spirit Saul. There's actually a Hebrew pun in this text that gets lost in our English translations, but that word for Saul feeling better is the same word as spirit. He's re-spirited by David's playing because David is the one who has the spirit. David's liar becomes a means of God's activity in Saul's life and in the story. And so when David plays, God's spirit plays. And other spirits vacate the space. 
And God uses all kinds of things in our lives to attend to us in that sort of way, doesn't he? There are all kinds of ways that God moves through things and people and events and circumstances in our lives to meet us where his spirit attends to us in a life-giving way. But there are some specific things that God has given to his children as instruments of his spirit's presence. And those are things that theologians over the ages have often called means of grace. They're things like prayer and the scriptures. They're things like the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper that we do together week after week. And there are things like the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that we experience in real friendship with one another when we actually take the risk to be vulnerable and encouraging with one another, when we pray for one another. What would it look like for you this week to practice the presence of the Spirit? To recognize that God has put instruments in your life so that his Spirit might play for you. Do you know how deeply you need that? You do, I do. And part of what it looks like to live faithfully and do the next thing faithfully is not to get so attached to our own agendas and strategies about what time management looks like and what kinds of activities are fruitful and wise and good places to invest our time and our resources, but rather to let God shape the way we engage our week, we engage our day. Will you make time for prayer? Will you make time for the scriptures? Will you make time for worship? Will you make time for one another and for cultivating the kinds of friendships in which the Spirit of God plays for you and for your neighbor? This is the invitation of God. May God give us grace this week to take up the king, king work wherever we find ourselves and to live by a dynamic of trusting and not grasping by practicing the presence of the Spirit and the fellowship with our risen King Jesus, who is great David's greater Son, in whom is life and light, wisdom and joy. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks that you, our Creator, have made us with such dignity, a little lower than the angels, a little lower than you. You've made us in your image, and you've called us to walk on your earth as instruments in your hands, instruments of your life and blessing. And you've gifted us with your spirit that we might be creative, that we might be healers, that we might be producers of good things, cultivators of life. God, would you so captivate our imaginations, and would you so encourage us by your spirit that you would give us a vision for living in your world that way and that you would free us from all the ways that we get so stuck. We get so stuck in our own agendas or our own need to control things. We, we get stuck in our grasping. Would you free us from the grasping so that we might become a people who trust and in so doing that we might become a people who know something of the life and the joy of your presence. We need your help for that, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.